Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. It's always the favorite time of the week. We get to chat to Dr. Christmas. Good to have you on, Chris. We won't talk cricket. Uh, no, let's not talk cricket, but we could talk about this virus. Isn't this interesting, the situation that's emerging from China and how the world's reacting to that? This coronavirus, please talk to me about that. What are your insights? Well, it, it's been very interesting to see how this has played out because the Chinese first picked this up in December and they notified the World Health Organization at the beginning of January. And now we're seeing the reaction around the world. And I've been in various teleconferences and things for Public Health England this week uh, here in the UK. And so mm-hmm. just within a, a matter of, of weeks, we've gone from knowing next to nothing about this to knowing what the genetic sequence is. I saw a paper come out of Beijing in the last couple of days in which they've actually analysed the surface coat of the virus, and it looks like it's a bat virus that's also got some snake in it. So people are now speculating, well, is this a sort of a bat wing on a snake and the snake catches the bat virus and mixes it up with snake coronavirus and then you end up with a hybrid virus and how does that get back into people? So people are beginning to try and dissect what's going on. And then you've got the whole what's happening in China angle with we're looking at Chinese New Year and what ostensibly is the biggest migration of humans around the world at any moment in time when people go to Chinese New Year. And we've got this sitting there as well. So it's going to be very interesting to see actually what happens in China over the next week or so. And I hope they're able to contain it. But I I think, obviously, the cat's out of the bag with this. I mean, it's it's beginning to spread. So all the best they can probably hope for is to slow it down. But it's going to be interesting to see how modern science thrown at this emerging virus is, is going to combat it. And how does it move from being transmitted from animals to being transmitted from human to human, for example? What, what, what actually takes right. place there? Well, what we think happened, and we're basing a lot of this as supposition on what happened with SARS, not the South African Revenue Service, although that's equally fearsome, <laughs> I understand. This is the severe acute respiratory syndrome that happened in 2002 to three, and also emerged under similar circumstances in China. And under those circumstances, someone took a consignment of bats, there were rhinolophus insectivorous bats, from rural China to a market. We think that those bats ended up in a cage next to a civet cat, in the market, the bats passed their coronavirus that was SARS to that civet cat. Because the civet cat's not the natural host of that virus, it became very, very infectious because it got very high levels of virus and that meant that it could readily, as the amplifying vector, pass the infection onto people in the market because the bats would only have been carrying the virus at very low level, much harder for them to transmit to the people. But the civet cat, the non-natural host, then was hooching virus and as a result the input to people was very high and that maximised the chance of the virus transmitting into the people. But then another phase kicks in because the virus has then got to humanise itself. There's a process of mutation or adaptation. Whenever you inject a virus into a new population, 
initially it behaves quite differently than as the population adapts and as the virus adapts to being in its new host. So what you'll generally see is a trade-off. The the virus is often quite virulent and quite aggressive and nasty when it first goes into a new host and then it adapts and becomes much less aggressive because at the end of the day, if a virus is too lethal and it kills off too many individuals, it deletes its own lifelong existence because it'll run out of, of hosts to infect, so you don't want to do that. So there's an equilibrium situation reached and we'd probably therefore expect this to to happen if this thing does continue to spread and propagate into the long term on the other hand SARS just fizzled out after one season this may do the same let's move on to some of the other questions if one was to consider the resolution um, of the human eye what would it be in megapixels and could we one day restore the sight in humans using optic sensors such as the ones we have in cameras? That's an interesting one. Yeah. Well, the thing to bear in mind here is that the eye is a sort of camera and it works optically like a camera, but it also has an important distinction from a static SLR camera. When you take a picture with a camera, you've got some optics on the front of the camera that are focusing the light, the scene, light rays onto a charge coupled device that's the sensitive bit of electronics inside the camera and wherever a spot of light falls that imparts some electricity that signal is read and the picture is built up by literally reading the pattern of electrical spots now your eye does not work in a series of static snapshots like that your eye is continuously moving you have these micro saccades they're very small but very rapid movements of the eye which moves the eye all around the visual scene And although we're not aware of it, it's happening because you can do eye tracking on people and watch what they're looking at at any moment in time. And you see the eye darting about. The effect is to take a series of snapshots, which the brain then recompiles into the whole world view that we think we've got. Now, there's only a million nerve fibres in the optic nerve of each eye transmitting data between the eye and the brain. So you've got to say, well, am I thinking when I'm asking what's the megapixel rate of the eye, am I thinking about just the eye or am I thinking about the visual image that it produces in the brain? And also you've got to bear in mind you have two eyes and but each eye sees one patch of the visual world exclusively and, the, and there's also a patch of the visual world where there's a strong overlap between the two eyes that's what stereoscopic vision is so it's not as simple as just saying this is the contribution of one eye this is the contribution of the other eye now if you do some calculations and add this stuff up estimates mm. are that you end up with an approximation of maybe 500 to 600 megapixels is the number of, of of spots of light that you're resolving and then sending into your brain wow. and building the picture but it's also more complicated because we don't have acute resolution the the kind of visual acuity you've got when you're looking at someone's face you don't have that across the entire visual scene you can do the experiment yourself look at a fixed point that you can see clearly away a meter or so away from you and bring your hand in from the side and you'll notice that when it's off in the periphery you can see it you're aware of it you can see it moving because your eyes very sensitive to movement at the periphery but actually you'll struggle to count how many fingers you're holding up when you're doing that until you get the fingers much closer in towards your central vision and then it becomes much more uh, acute vision and that's because the rods and cones that do the seeing are not evenly distributed across your retina they're concentrated in the yellow spot the macula which in which is the fovea the most sensitive bit of the retina so unlike a camera which evenly represents the visual field everywhere your eye does not work like that so it's actually quite difficult to say eye camera and relate the two directly because there are these these important distinctions but people are getting pretty close now we understand how this works 
to recapitulating how an eye works and producing new ways of making people who were blind see. And we, we can actually make chips, little electric devices that go inside people's eyes now and work a bit like an SLR camera, produce an electric current that you can feed into the optic nerve and people are actually able to see things at very low resolution, admittedly, but they're able to see again as long as they have an intact optic nerve. And that wasn't possible even 10 years ago. So it, it is amazing what's being done. Another question here. We saw an announcement about two weeks ago about how scientists have created xenobots using stem cells taken from eggs, right? Um, and other scientists have been working on nanobots. The aim, we suppose, is that one day they'll be injected into the bodies and perform certain tasks such as clearing arteries. But won't they be attacked by our white blood cells? Now, that sounds like something we might have asked before, quite frankly, as I'm saying it. Um, but, but what can you tell us about that? Xenobots versus nanobots and the future. Yes, the Xenobot story was that they took various various populations of cells and put them together in slightly different ways than they would normally assemble themselves in an embryo in different cell populations and showed that they can still nonetheless interact and, and make decisions, as it were, and do things autonomously up to a point and this shows that you can you can take clusters of cells and endow them with a function and it might be possible to do this in the body to program things to to do things in the future in various places the whole thing is though that we're very interested in stem cells these days because we've gone through a period where we used to give people exclusively pills to cure problems and that would be putting a molecule into the body that would go to a target and do something to either a group of cells or a tissue or a bunch of chemicals in the body to make an illness better but some diseases are caused by the loss of or the destruction of other cells in your body so Mm -hmm. No number of pills is going to put the cells back, probably. So one good way to treat that is to put the cells back. So there's a very active pursuit of ways to get healthy cells back into a person and then get those cells to where they're needed and and program them to home in on where they're needed. Now, in terms of how you cope with the immune response, initially people thought this was going to be a bigger headache than it probably will be because we hadn't at that time discovered enough about how you can reprogram a human cell from an adult state back to a very primitive, unspecialised state and then convert it into the type of cell you want. And the benefit of doing that is you can take your own cells and reprogram them into new versions of whatever you want, a heart cell, a blood cell, whatever, from, say, a skin cell. And then it's genetically you and therefore it's not going to have an immune response problem. The other thing is that it's possible to make cells that are stem cells but they don't express the same level of markers on their surface that the immune system reacts to. So you can engineer cells so that they are not immunogenic. They don't drive an immune response in the same way, and the body therefore Mm -hmm. tolerates them. So there's a range of strategies and options open to us to use cells therapeutically in this way. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. If you've got any questions about everyday life and you want to understand the scientific explanation behind something that you might have experienced, might have seen, etc., then all you can do is pick up the phone, give us a call, 021-446-0567. So, Paul, what is your question? Okay, well, if you took a, a piece of coal the size of a squash ball, I want to know what size it would be when you squash it into a diamond, into a high-quality diamond. Okay. So now, I mean, it's easy to go into Google and look at... Okay, that line is bad. Okay, Chris, I think you've got the, the crux of the question there. The line broke up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but let's dive into that one. This is a really good question that I can't answer. 
in any way other than a hand-wavy way. The thing is that diamond, as Paul is sort of suggesting, is carbon. And you've got carbon atoms linked to other carbon atoms, and each carbon atom is surrounded by, uh, in a tetrahedral shape, other carbon atoms. And that bonded structure is very, very powerful. That diamond would have been made by intense temperature and pressure deep inside the Earth and then turned up at the surface of the Earth when it was brought up by, say, a volcano or something or some geological manifestation. To turn a a lump of coal into a diamond, very, very difficult thing to do. Coal has got other stuff in there. It's not just carbon. So you'd have to make, make some other way of cleaning just the carbon out of the coal. But I don't actually know what the ratio would be because I don't know for sure what else is in that coal. Mm. I mean, coal is a hydrocarbon. It's not just pure carbon. There's a whole range of other chemicals in there as well. So I think this is such an elegant question. I'm going to take this away and I'm going to do it properly and we're going to work this out properly and then I'll come back next week and I'll explain how I've worked it out properly and what my suggestion is from the size of a diamond I would get from a squash ball-sized lump of coal. It would probably be quite a nice big diamond and we can grow big diamonds in the laboratory already. Then They're not the kind of thing you'd have as an engagement ring but there are labs and you can commission a nice big diamond and they will use a process called chemical vapour deposition, usually using methane rather than coal as the source of the carbon to deposit carbon atoms to make big sheets of diamond but uh, I I reckon we get quite a nice chunk from a bit of coal but I'm going to do it properly and come back next week and tell you Another question here for you Chris Um, Dr Chris why do propellers on an aeroplane change direction and go slow or speed up and show the propeller as almost standing still when in fact the prop is actually going very fast. This is when you're looking on, say, a video camera or a television, and this is what we call a stroboscopic Mm. effect. The way a video camera works is that it takes a very fast sequence of pictures, anything from 25 to 70 or even more pictures per second. And what that means is when you have an object that's moving, you get... 50, let's pretend the frame rate is 50, 50 glimpses a second of the propeller. And when you've got something which is, say, in the 12 o'clock position, and then it moves around a bit by the time you get the next look, and then a bit more, you get another look, and a bit more, you get another look. If it's speeding up, each time the blade goes round, instead of being in the same position each time, it will move a bit further at the next time you look. And as a result, it looks like it's turning very slowly because it's gone all the way around and back to where it was going to get to and a bit further and then a bit further and a bit further each time. And eventually it gets to a point where it'll look like it's going backwards because it's gone all the way around but not quite made it back to where it started twice, as it were. So you'll go through a phase where it'll start going forwards, then it'll look like it's going backwards and then it'll look like it's going so fast you can't see it again. And it's because you're seeing a sequence of glimpses of the of the propeller positions rather than just the propeller in its position all the time and it, it's a stroboscopic effect caused by the camera that's doing the imaging okay great stuff inga in Rondebosch. good morning good morning kino hello a few, a few weeks ago you had a long discussion on hair yep uh, human hair i would like to know why do men often start receding above the temple on either side of the centre of the head. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's like yes. an inverted V. Why do men have it and women don't? Okay. The reason for this question. is this is called male pattern baldness. It's caused by testosterone. 
And in fact, if you give testosterone to a woman, and we see this because there are people who change sex, for example, and they may start taking male hormones, you can have a lady with a full head of hair who will then go bald. So we know that this is, or we'll lose hair. So we know that this is a manifestation of testosterone, which is being selectively toxic to certain populations of hair follicles. It literally kills them off in the scalp. The vulnerability for that is written into the X chromosome. Men have only one X chromosome. Women have two X chromosomes. Women don't have very high levels of testosterone either. So women have two chances of having an X chromosome that doesn't have the male pattern baldness written into it and they also have very low levels of testosterone naturally to poison their hair follicles with so women are relatively protected but not exclusively so so as women get older they will get hair thinning because there has been nevertheless some exposure to some testosterone over their lifetime so they do lose hair but just not at the same rate that men do well there we go thank you very much for that and that leaves us with enough time to say Thank you very much, Chris, and I hope you have a fabulous weekend. Looking forward to chatting to you next week again. Thanks. I'm going to get my piece of coal, and I'm going to get my calculator. I'm going to solve this problem for next week.